0: You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Uh, First, let me say on behalf of our church, Caleb, thank you very much for stepping in for Steve. Steve's in Texas visiting family. Uh, He goes down there a couple times a year, and we're really grateful to have uh, this brother come so that our our band can take a break. Thank you. Uh, That's enough about Caleb, because he's not that important. Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. No, you're very important to me. I love you a lot. Um, We're continuing our study of the Ten Commandments, Uh, and this evening we're going to be looking at the second commandment, uh, where we see that there are to be no images of God. We just confessed it a moment ago together. Uh, that this commandment says there are to be no images of God and no worshiping God by or through images. Um, I'm going to be completely honest with you. Uh, you're probably going to feel like you're drinking from a fire hose this evening. We have a lot of material to go through, and I'm going to try to blast through it as quickly as I can. Um, but last week, we looked at the first commandment, uh, where we learned that we are to have no gods, but the true and living God of Scripture, the God of Israel, Yahweh is his name. Uh, and now this week, we're going to be focusing mainly on the worship of God. So you could look at it this way: the first commandment tells us worship the right God, and the second commandment tells us worship the right God in the right way. Right now, maybe you're like me, uh, and growing up, you thought that the first and second commandments were basically the same thing, right? You maybe you thought to yourself, okay, so I'm, I'm supposed to have no other gods but God. And then I'm supposed to not make any idols or worship any idols. But if I make an idol, right, which is a false god, then that's having another god. So these commandments are basically saying the same thing two different ways. Did anyone else grow up thinking that the first and second commandment were basically the same? Maybe I'm the only one. All right. I'm the only one that can't read. Um, But (laughs) that's what I thought for years. For years, I thought the first and second commandment were basically the same thing. Um, which is actually how uh, Catholics and Lutherans number their Ten Commandments, is they put the First and Second Commandment together and then split our Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. It's a very long commandment. They'll split it into two different commandments, and that's how they get ten. I think that's an error. Um, I think that's wrong. Uh, And I think it's wrong to think that the First and Second Commandment are basically the same thing. Um, I don't think God is being redundant in the Second Commandment. I don't think he's trying to just reinforce what he said in the First Commandment. The second commandment is meant to be distinct from the first and tell us something different about God and instruct us um, in the worship of God. But I think the reason why some of us are confused about the second commandment is that we think that idolatry is only worshiping a different God. Now granted, most of the time when the Bible talks about idolatry, it is worshiping a wholesale different God, a pagan God. But idolatry in the Bible can also be worshiping the right God the wrong way. Right, let me give you a very famous example. It's in Exodus chapter 32. Right? We're going to spend some time thinking about this real quick. Uh, the golden calf incident. Right, You guys will remember that. Uh, and if you don't, let me refresh your memory. Um, Moses, the prophet that God had used uh, to bring the people out of Israel, had been gone on Mount Sinai for about 40 days after the law was given, after the Ten Commandments were given. So the people of Israel begin to get restless, and they go to Moses' brother Aaron and tell him, Make gods for us. Now, I don't think that the the Jews were so silly as to think that they could make a god, right? Not even the pagans were that foolish. Uh, But they rather, they wanted Aaron to make a representation of God for them, right? So that's what they're asking for. Make us a representation of God. So Aaron takes their jewelry, and he melts it down and makes a golden calf for them. And when it was finished, the people of Israel said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, right? These are your gods, And this is usually where people think that they're worshiping a completely different God. But I think that that's actually a mistranslation, and I don't say that lightly, right? And I'm not the only one that thinks this, so don't think that I'm crazy. Uh, That word there that says, these are your gods, O Israel, that word gods in Hebrew is Elohim. Now, Elohim can be translated into plural gods with a tiny g, or depending on the context, it can be translated capital G, God, singular. Elohim is one of the generic names for God. Now, think about this context. Aaron made how many calves? I shouldn't have pluralized it. He made one, right? He made one golden calf. And it doesn't make any sense to say that the one object is God's in the plural, right? So I think, and other translations in English actually read, but I think it should say, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. Again, because they're meaning it to represent Yahweh. Furthermore, after Aaron built an altar for this idol, In Exodus 32, we read in verse 5, Aaron declares, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, the God of Israel. So, at the minimum, this calf is somehow linked to the worship of Yahweh, the true and living God. Later in the chapter, we actually see God saying to Moses in verses 7 and 8, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Now, what commandment had they turned aside from? They didn't break the first commandment, they were worshiping Yahweh. They had turned away from the second commandment. And this is why God gets angry with them. They turned away from the second commandment by making an image that represented God. They made a yearling bull, a calf. And in their minds, the bull probably represented the power of God to lead them out of Egypt. And they turned away from the second commandment by worshiping God through the bull, using it as a point of focus and a conduit of sorts to God. Now, now we could go to other examples of this kind of thing happening in the Old Testament. You can read the book of 1 Kings. You'll read about a man named Jehu who ran all worship out of Israel, but he allowed them to keep their golden calves by which they worshiped Yahweh. The Bible says he did good in ridding them of Baal or Baal, but he let them keep their calves, and that was not good. But anyway, I think that this one example from Exodus 32 is sufficient for us to see that idolatry is not just worshiping a different God, but idolatry can also be worshiping the true God in a false way, and that's the big thrust of the second commandment. Um, In a catechism written by a Reformed Baptist named Hercules Collins, he wrote a catechism called An Orthodox Catechism because he was super original in his naming, Uh, but it was written in 1680. We read this in that catechism, question 107, what is God's will for us in the second commandment? The answer, that we in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any way other than he has commanded in his word. And I think that that hits the nail on the head. That's a good understanding of the second commandment. And that's where we're going this evening. Uh, this sermon really has two big points that we're, that we're thrusting at. And the first is this. We are to have no images of God. And the second, we are to worship God the way that he tells us to in his word. Right, so that's where we're going this evening. With that, with that said, let's go ahead and read our text and then go to the Lord in prayer. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Let's pray. Holy God of all things, we humble ourselves before you, admitting that we are ignorant without your instruction. We don't know anything about you or what pleases you apart from your word. We don't know how to worship you properly without your word. We don't know the way of salvation without your word. We're a foolish people and we're prone to so many errors. Please, God, correct us by your word. And instruct us in how we might worship you and honor you as holy. Please help us now to receive, believe, and understand your word. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Alright, so before we dive in, uh, I'd like to address two things that often confuse people when they read this text. Uh, The first is this. Some people read this passage and they think that God is prohibiting us from making any kind of art. I don't know if you know it or not. You can read some old, old debates. Uh, they, they look at where the commandment says, you shall not make any likeness of anything, and they think, well, art is definitely a likeness of things, so there should be no art ever, right? Uh, that's not true, right? We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that. Uh, <laughs> that's just not true. Uh, if you actually go over to chapter 31 of Exodus, you can read where God tells Moses that he has given artists help, wisdom, and ability by the Holy Spirit to aid them as they make all the decorations and art that is to go in the tabernacle, right? So no worries if you like to draw, sculpt, paint, or whatever it is that artists do. I don't know what you do. I don't like that. Um, more power to you. Uh, art is totally acceptable, though. Right? I, like, I like looking at art. I don't like to make it. That's what I meant. Right? I'm not a barbarian. Um, but yeah, art is totally acceptable. God actually commanded artists to make artwork for the tabernacle. I just wanted to be clear on that. It's not saying that you can't draw. Um, but the second thing I want to address before we dive into this, um, people get hung up on the warning in this commandment. Right? So let's go ahead and read that again. The warning. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now people read that and think that God is promising to punish children because their parents were wicked. And that's not quite what this passage is teaching us. right? In fact, Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20 refutes that kind of understanding of this morning and let me read Ezekiel 18:20 to you. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Right? So God makes it clear that just because a parent, in this case a father, is evil, that does not mean that the children are automatically going to be punished by God because of their father's sins. And if you're like me and you had a father who's very evil, you're, you praise God that, that he renders every man accountable for his own actions and not the actions of his parents. Um, in fact, I, I want to push that further. Look at the condition in this warning here in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, the condition on this warning of punishment to future generations of children. God says that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. So if the children turn from the sins of their parents, they won't be punished. If they turn from the sins of their parents, they won't be punished. Punishment from God is only to those who hate him and are disloyal to him. That's what it means to hate him here, those who are disloyal. Likewise, the steadfast love of God is only to those who love him and keep his commandments. Right? So children aren't necessarily saved because of the faith of their parents, and they're not necessarily condemned because of the wickedness of their parents. Right, So enough about what this text is not telling us. What is this text saying then? What's the purpose of this warning? What is God saying? I think that God's warning us that parents, by example, often lead their children into sin. And this is a fitting thing for us to talk about here for a minute with all your children sitting here amongst you, parents. Often parents lead their children into sin. And when children follow that sinful example, they too will be punished. Children often follow their parents into ungodliness and unbelief. Likewise, likewise, parents, by example, often help lead their children to know God and to worship Him rightly and to obey Him. And if the children pursue God like their parents, they too will be saved. Right? Or another way to look at it, and Kevin DeYoung put it this way, it's as if God is saying, there will be no excuse of, quote, I was just doing what my parents taught me. There'll be no excuse of that. Every person is going to be responsible for their own sin in the end, and children won't be able to look at their parents and say, I just did what they told me. God will render everyone accountable. But parents, a quick aside, what a responsibility God is laying before you. What a responsibility he's he's giving to you to teach your children proper reverence for God and the proper worship of God. The way we raise our children can affect multiple generations to come. And this is not a refutation of the sovereignty of God in salvation. We believe that God ordains the means as well as the ends. So the, the wickedness of parents can affect multiple generations to come and the righteousness of parents can affect multiple generations to come. So teach your children to know and love and fear the Lord and to worship Him rightly. Take time. Again, I harp on this a lot. Do family worship. Spend time in prayer. Read the Word together. Whenever you discipline your children, talk to them that you're not disciplining them because they've broken mom and dad's rules, but because they have violated the law of God. Teach your children to know and fear the Lord. But this is a call for all of us, but especially parents, to take seriously the commandments of God. Particularly, in this case, the proper worship of God. But diving into this commandment now, the first thing that we see is God giving us a prohibition of making any image that is meant to depict him or represent him or be some kind of worship conduit for us. Right? And this is any kind of image, whether it be a drawing or sculpture, statue, painting, whatever. There are to be no images of God. We're not to make them and we're not to possess them. Right? So seeing the surface level what of the commandment is pretty easy. Right? It's very easy. The what and the commandments are often very easy to see. But why? That's always the question I want to ask. Why would God command this? Why does God forbid us from making images that attempt to depict him? Or represent him. And i want to give you three things real quick. Again, because there's, there's so much to talk about with this commandment. But why does God hate images that attempt to represent him or depict him? Well, first and foremost, God commands us to make no images of him. Because it is an offense to his majesty. It's an offense to the majesty of God. Guys, I want you guys to see a big God. That's one of my prayers is that you would see a big majestic God and think very highly of him. God is holy. He is utterly unique and he's transcendent. He's so above us and everything that he's made, he's above everything and anything in all of creation. And in light of his transcendence and his majesty as the only God who is completely unique, there is nothing that we could make with our hands, no matter how beautiful or how great, that could even remotely do justice to the supremacy, beauty, and greatness of our God. He is absolutely unique and incomparable. He even says in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 25, is become one of my favorite verses, To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him. The King James says, to whom will you liken me? I actually like that. Who will you liken me to? What will you compare me to? What image would you make and say, that's what God is like, or that I should be like that image? There's nothing like God in all of creation. So for us to make an image and say, God is like this, or this represents God, is an absolute insult to him. We can't compare him to anything, even the very nature of God, his triune nature. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three-in-one that we just sang praises to. There's nothing that we can compare that to in, in all of creation. If you try, you'll accidentally fall into a heresy. <laughs> right? There's nothing for us to compare him to. So what would we dare compare our God to in an image? Second reason God hates images, uh, or the attempt to depict himself, is that we could never make any image that encompasses all of who God is. Every depiction or image that we could make would fall woefully short of being accurate to all of the attributes of God. All right, let me give you an example. If we made an image attempting to depict the love of God, right, or the loving attribute, or rather the attribute of God's love, then we would do so at the expense of His other attributes. And hear me out. There's a, there's a doctrine. You write this down if you're taking notes. It's called divine simplicity. Do a study on that. Take a Lord's Day and before you come to worship. Study divine simplicity. And that doctrine says that God is all of who he is at once. His name, I am that I am. He is pure being. He is the sum total of his attributes at all times. Right? He's not loving at some points and wrathful at others. He is all of who he is at once. All that is in God is God. But an image can only highlight one or a few things about God at a time. And God is greater than that image. You cannot encompass who God is in an image. He—he's Not only is he incomparable, but it just wouldn't be accurate because God is all of who he is all at the same time. Third, we see this, and this to you might seem more practical. We see in the history of Israel that in the Old Testament, um, that eventually images turn into a false god. First, the people make images and no one stops them, and then people attempt to worship God through the images, and eventually the ground has been worked in their hearts enough that paganism and false gods can come in. I think that there's a correlation between the two. They make an image, they worship the true God falsely, and then they fall into the worship of a pagan god. And God would spare us from that kind of a fall. So what does he do? He cuts it off at the root, and he says, no images. I, wouldn't, I don't want you to fall into that kind of pagan nonsense. Now, again, we could go further into the reasons why God detests any attempt to depict him um, by way of image. Uh, but there's more for us to consider in this commandment. And what I'm about to do is uh, a bit controversial. Um, a natural question arises when we consider this commandment to make no images of God. And the question is this. What about pictures of Jesus? What about images of Jesus? I'm gonna shoot straight with you, I'd say no. I'd say no, in light of this commandment, I think the images that try to depict Jesus are not allowed. I think they're a breaking of the second commandment. Now I'll give you an argument for why here in a minute, but let me say this, Uh, even though he's not here, I'm gonna speak for both me and Pastor Steve. Uh, We're not alone on this, right? We're not crazy, this may be a new thought to you that images of Jesus are a breaking of the second commandment, but it's not a new thought. Um, there are multiple reformed Baptist catechisms the Heidelberg catechism the Westminster larger and shorter catechisms all are in line with this view that images of Jesus are prohibited not to mention many, many, many great theologians right, but I want to be fair and honest before I go any further and I want you to know this many, many good and godly Christians who love God and want to honor him would disagree with us Right, And I just want to be fair and say that. Men like R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, and Albert Moeller would say the images of Jesus can be acceptable, but they're often unfruitful and foolish, but they're not intrinsically s- sinful. Now, I wanted to highlight that point, and I wanted to name those three men in particular because I love them all, and I think we can all agree if R.C. Sproul wasn't a Christian, then I don't know very many Christians. Um, right, So I say that... Um, Because I want you guys to see that faithful, thoughtful Christians can disagree. And I don't believe that this is a salvation issue. Uh, But with that being said, I I do believe that this is an issue worth debating. And this is an issue worth picking a side on. Why? Because it has to do with the honor and glory of God. As a Christian, if your thought process is only, will I go to hell over this or will I not? You're woefully missing the point. As a Christian, you want to honor God in everything you do, right? Right? So this matters, and that's why we're studying the Ten Commandments, because we want to honor God by obeying Him. Now, if you're new to this debate, or you just flat-out disagree with the Reformed understanding of this commandment, let me pose a question to you before I give you an argument for why you should abstain from images of Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Why do you want a picture or statue or painting of Jesus? Why do you want one? Is it to make His humanity more real to you? Is it to remind you of something about him or that he did in his earthly life? Is it to affirm his incarnation and affirm his humanity? If that's, if that's why you say that you like and, 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 and enjoy images of Jesus, uh, or that's their purpose they can serve, to, to all of that I would say this, you have the sufficient word of God to do those things. You have the word of God to do those things, to remind you of Christ's humanity and to affirm his humanity and remind you of all that he's done. And I think that we can all as Christians agree that the scriptures are more real and certain than any man-made image and that the word of God is sufficient for us. Or do you think that images are good because they help you to focus when you pray or do some other kind of religious activity? Right, they make you revere God more because you have an image in front of you. Or that the image reminds you of Christ's mediation on your behalf or something like that. Or, or maybe you like images of Jesus because they stir up some kind of emotion towards God in your heart when you look at them. If that's you, then I would say this. That is an explicit violation of the second commandment that we can all get behind. That is an explicit violation of the second commandment. We can all agree that images are not to be used as any kind of conduit or aid in our worship, whether it be public or private. We're to have no kind of visual aid or representation of God in our worship. Again, the word of God is sufficient to help you as you pray. The Word of God is sufficient as you do anything that God requires of you. It's sufficient to remind you of everything that Christ has done, and it's more accurate. And scripture is certainly sufficient to stoke our affections toward the Lord Jesus. All in all, I can't think of any reason for us to have images that cannot be answered by the Word of God. Right? And what I'm getting at with that is, guys, the scriptures are sufficient for you. We believe in solo scriptura, the scriptures are sufficient. We don't need anything else to remind us of Jesus or help us worship. God works through and by his word. That's his appointed means. And he'll do everything that he says that he will. We don't need to supplement his word with images. And if it's unnecessary and even questionable, then why would we make or possess images of Christ? But here's my argument biblically, right? Because that all sounds great. But where's biblical argument, Dave? Um, Here's my one argument, very quickly, uh, on why this prohibition of images applies to Jesus. If you look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, who is speaking? The Lord. I am Yahweh. Yahweh is speaking. Now jumping forward into the New Testament, when we read the New Testament, we see Old Testament passages quoted and applied to Jesus. One example is in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 and 12, I'll read that to you real quick. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. That quotation is from Psalm 102, and the author of Hebrews applies it to Jesus. Now, if we go back to Psalm 102 and read the first verse, we can see to whom the psalm is addressed. Verse 1 of Psalm 102 says, Hear my prayer, O Yahweh. Let my cry come to you. So this, I'm, I'm, you have to do some thinking with me. The psalmist is addressing Yahweh. And the author of Hebrews says that this psalm applies to Jesus. What does that tell us? Jesus is Yahweh. Furthermore, there are other passages in the New Testament and the Old Testament that call the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of Yahweh. The Holy Spirit is also Yahweh. This means that the name of God, Yahweh, is a reference to the whole Trinity—Father, Son, and Spirit. Right. This is actually just so you know. This is one of the ways in apologetics that we defend the doctrine of the Trinity against non-Trinitarians. This is one of our strongest arguments: is that every person of the Godhead is referred to as Yahweh in the Scriptures. Right. So when Yahweh speaks and gives the Ten Commandments, who's speaking? The Godhead speaks. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit speak. And the Godhead says, make no images of me. Make no images of me. So that means that this commandment applies to every single person of the Trinity. There are to be no images of any of the persons of the Godhead. Now, I hope you guys see what I see there. But if you don't, we believe in Sola Scriptura. Go home, study it for yourself. And if you think I'm a crazy person, come and we'll talk it out. I'll fight you in the parking lot, right? But we can talk about it, right? But based on the biblical evidence that I've studied, this is where I've come down. So please feel free to come to me if this is troubling for you or this seems crazy. I would love to teach you. I love you. I I do my best to be patient. We'll talk this through, right? That's my job, and I love you guys. Um, But moving past what the commandment prohibits. I want us to look at what it's actually commanding us to do. And I know I've been up here for a while. We're going to keep going a little bit longer. Because y'all watch movies and you'll be fine. Um, Right? (laughs) When God tells us, make no images of me and don't worship me by images, what's he telling us? I mean, the most baseline thing. He's telling us, don't worship me that way. Don't worship me like the pagans worship. Don't worship me like that. And in saying that, God is implying that there is a proper way to worship him. There's a right way to worship God. If God says, don't worship me like that, then he's necessarily implying, worship me like this. And he's going to tell us what that way is. Right? Something you guys need to know is that every commandment has a positive and negative aspect. And we're going to keep going over that as we look at all these commandments. When God tells us to do something, he implies that we abstain from the opposite. And when God tells us to not do something, he implies that we must do the opposite, right? Let me give you a quick example. In the commandment, you shall not murder, we see very clearly we're not <laughs> to murder people. But it also implies that we are to, see, to, we are to seek to see life flourish and to defend innocent life, right? So for every positive command, it implies a negative prohibition. For every negative prohibition, it implies a positive command, So, in this commandment, we see that as God's people, we're to worship Him in whatever way He commands. Nothing more, nothing less. Just simply do what He tells us to do when we meet together for worship. (coughs) Basically, this commandment teaches us that we don't need to invent ways to worship God because God Himself will tell us what He wants. We don't need to make up ways to worship God. Furthermore, not only do we not need to invent ways to worship God, we are not permitted to worship God in any way that he hasn't revealed in his word. And if you don't see that in the second commandment, I'm going to show you somewhere else that it's very plain to see so you can at least listen to the rest of the sermon, right? Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 29 through 32. I'm going to read this and explain as I go a little bit. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you this is right before the Jews are going to go in and destroy the people of Canaan and they're going to take the land they're going to inherit the promised land right this is Deuteronomy right before they go in he says when you go in and dispossess them and cut them off from the land don't follow them don't follow them and I'll keep reading And do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. He's saying, you don't worship them Or you don't worship me the way that they worship their gods. I hate how they worship their gods. And I understand the specific example is that they sacrifice their children, which there's a whole sermon to be said on that in light of what happened last week. But verse 32, God goes and he broadens it out. He says, everything that I command you, and this context is the worship of the one true God. He says, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. And to me, that's that's pretty cut and dry as far as I'm concerned. God is very clear that we are not to adopt ideas and opinions for worship from the world. We aren't to look around and see how other groups do things or what people want. We're to look to God's commands in his word and then just do those when we come to worship him in both public and private. He says, you do what I say, you don't add to it, you don't take from it. But how serious is God about this? Let me give you an example that God that shows us that God does not accept worship that he has not commanded and how serious he is about this. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. You see why you need to read the Old Testament? Just throwing that out there. Read the Old Testament. There's a, there's a lot in there. It's two-thirds of our whole book. Read it. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, that's an incense burner, "...and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them." There's debate on whether or not it was the incense that they put on that was improper incense that God hadn't commanded, or whether they took fire from the wrong place to light their burners. But whatever it was, God didn't command them to do that. And to offer up incense to God was a form of worship under the Old Covenant. What does God do? Verse 2, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So what we see here is that God struck down Nadab and Abihu because they offered a form of worship. That God did not command them. It all, it all hinges on that in verse 1. Which he had not commanded them. He killed them. God is deadly serious when it comes to his own worship. And what was God's reasoning for doing this? And making an example of these two? Verse 3 tells us, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. What's God saying there? He's saying, you will regard me as Holy. You will regard me as holy. You will not approach me any way you want and offer worship in whatever way you please and say, He'll take that. He ought to just be glad and grateful that I'm worshiping Him. No, you won't offer God whatever you please and think that He'll, he'll take what you give. God will not accept any worship that He has not sanctioned and commanded in His word. This doctrine that we see in the second commandment and these other places, we call it the regulative principle of worship. So yeah, there's your word that makes you feel smarter than all your friends for the week. The regulative principle of worship, we call it the RPW. And all that it implies is that God regulates his own worship. (laughs) And his people are regulated by the commands of God found in the word. And this RPW, this second commandment really, is vitally important for the people of God if we want to honor him and be blessed by him in our worship. And this doctrine strikes at the heart of much of the modern church and its forms of worship. Right? If, you, if you were to visit many churches today or get online and see the advertisements of many churches on Facebook, you would see them doing all kinds of things in the worship service that God does not command and therefore does not want. You'll see dance teams, drama teams, Plays, you know that? Oh, it's Easter Sunday, so instead of a church service, we're going to have a play. Um, using movies in the service, using film clips during the sermon as if the preacher's going to exegete a movie instead of the scriptures, playing secular songs during the time of singing. I saw a flag team once, and that was really weird, and I didn't understand it. Um, <laughs> there's a ton of gimmicky, worldly nonsense that goes on in the church that passes as worship. And just for total transparency, don't get too self-righteous. We used to be one of those churches, didn't we, Caleb? We were one of those churches for years. There's all kinds of gimmicky nonsense that goes on in the church. And by the way, unbelievers see this stuff, and if you talk to one who's candid with you, they think it's embarrassing for us. It's corny. Hear me out. Your dance team is not better than the world's. The church generally is not as good at entertainment as the world is. Have you watched Fireproof? Give me a break. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But we don't meet to entertain people or have fun. Right? Don't get me wrong. Like... Worshipping God among his people is a joy. And after we had to cancel last week, I had people coming and saying, I didn't know what to do with myself. I missed being here. I missed being amongst the people of God, sitting under the sacraments and hearing the preaching of the word. It is a joy. But we don't meet here to have fun. We come here to worship God Almighty. We don't meet here for fun. We meet here to worship. But why do churches do this kind of stuff? The Puritans called it will worship. I like that. The Puritans called it will worship. Basically, churches are asking themselves, what do we want to do instead of what does God want us to do? And in doing so, they're basically worshiping their own wills. They're doing as they please and what they think would be the most fun to do. Or, and this is the better of the two reasons, if you call it that. Some churches are asking themselves, what can we do that will make unbelievers want to come to church? And that's what we used to ask ourselves. What can we do to make unbelievers want to come? And what they find out really quickly is that unbelievers like to be entertained. They don't care much for preaching or doctrine. And they don't really want to have to think much about the holiness of God and what his word says. So then they change what they do when they meet together and how they preach accordingly to get people to come to them. I'm not afraid to tell you this, though it may sound harsh. God hates that. God hates man-made, self-willed worship. He killed Nadab and Abihu. He struck many sick in Corinth because they were improperly taking the supper. He tells us multiple times throughout the word to approach him and worship him in accordance with his word. God's not kidding when it comes to this. We must worship him his way. But I think that the biggest problem with much modern worship that ignores the second commandment is this people think that worship is about them and their experiences and emotions at the church. But that's not true. Worship is not about you, worship's about God. Worship is the people of God humbling themselves before God, declaring His excellencies and sitting under His appointed means of worship and then receiving blessing from Him as He blesses His own appointed means. That's worship. We come together and do what pleases Him according to His word and receive blessing. Worship's not about us. We're blessed in it for certain, but it's about him and declaring his excellencies and being reminded of his goodness and greatness and the salvation that he has given to us who are just mere recipients. It's not about us. It's about him. And how dare we, how dare we try and hijack the worship of God and turn it into an entertainment show that centers on sinful man and what we desire? This kind of arrogance and hubris is why God hates man-invented worship. Switch gears a little bit. Paul tells us in First Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he says he writes, and in First Timothy he's writing about how a church is to operate. He says he writes so that Timothy would know, quote, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He says, I write so that you would know how you ought to behave in the household of God. That tells us that that there's an oughtness, right? A way that we ought to do things. There's an oughtness to our conduct and worship in the church. And when I say the church, again, like Paul says, I don't mean the building that we meet in. This is a church building. But when God's people assemble, the household of faith, right? The church of the living God. There's an oughtness for how we ought to conduct ourselves. But keeping this household theme in mind... I want you to answer, who is the master of the house? It's God. God is the master of the house. God is the father of this people. That means that he establishes the rules. He tells us what to do when we gather together. He regulates us, if you will. Listen to me. He is father, which makes us the children of his household. And children do not make the rules. The Father does. The Father makes the rules. So it's very clear that we must worship God how God wants us to, but how does he want us to worship? That's the question. The Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 23, our Lord Jesus says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. We must worship God in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit? It means to worship God with a proper heart disposition. This is talking about inwardly. To worship God in spirit is to worship God out of a heart of love and gratitude and thankfulness to God for who he is and the grace that he's shown to you in the Lord Jesus. To worship in spirit, again, describes the heart aspect of worship. And this spiritual worship is brought on and is the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to change us and make us into true worshipers. All right, so it's this inward disposition. We're to worship in spirit, having been changed by the Spirit of God, to love God and delight in Him. So it's not just a mere external form, but it's an inward worship. And it's to worship in spirit and truth. Now what is truth? Not to sound like Pontius Pilate or anything, but what is truth when it comes to worship? Truth is the word of God. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, the Lord Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So externally, we're to worship by the word. As we've said many times now, and I hope that's beaten into your brain. But the scriptures are to determine our external forms and methods of worship. And we do this because the scriptures are the only sufficient an infallible and trustworthy source of truth about God and what pleases Him, including the proper way to worship Him. And what does the Word tell believers under the New Covenant, what we're to do externally when we worship? For the sake of brevity, I'm just going to give you a list, rather than going into all of the aspects of the means of grace. Uh, one, we preach the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, we preach the Word. Two, we pray. To God alone, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. We read God's word, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. We sing songs to God about God. Reverent songs about God that instruct one another in who God is. None of this Jesus is my boyfriend, trash. Right? That's Colossians 3:16. We sing songs to God about God. We administer baptism. Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20 we partake of the lord's supper 1 corinthians 11:26 and though this is kind of debated in the reformed tradition we confess our faith 1 timothy chapter 3 verse 16 Now, what you see then is that this makes for a pretty plain and simple time of worship right it may be kind of long right but it's simple right it's simple that's the beauty of it though we don't need a bunch of external stuff. Essentially, we just need the Word of God, and that is enough, and it pleases God. The worship of God's people, or rather, when, the, when God's people worship, is not only governed by His revealed Word, but it's also focused on His Word. Everything we do has something to do with the Scriptures, and everything rotates around the Scriptures. That's why the sermon takes up the majority of our worship. Why is that? Because the Word of God is sufficient for us. We don't need anything else. His word is enough. And listen, this ought to move your heart to worship. We ought to praise this great gift-giving God for blessing us with something as great and sufficient as the scriptures. He's left us with all that we need in his word. Now some people, because I like to argue against you if you're thinking contrary to what I'm saying, (laughs) some people would say that this understanding of the second commandment And worship is stifling, right? That it restricts us too much and that it's too limiting. But hear me out, so what? There's my big argument, so what? God has declared that this is how he wants to be worshipped by his people. And worship isn't about you. So, so what if you feel like this is too restrictive? You're not the one being worshipped. You're not the one being worshipped. That's like you asking someone to make you your favorite food and instead they make their favorite food and say, yeah, what I wanted tastes better than what you wanted. Right? They've missed the point entirely. It wasn't about what they liked. It's what you asked for. So to those who object to this doctrine and say it's too, restrict, too restrictive, I say in return, so what? Who cares what you and I think? Who cares what we prefer? Worship is about God and it's not about you and I. But listen, aside from that, let's think about something. Would God ever tell us to do something that wasn't absolutely for your good? Would God ever tell you to do anything that wasn't absolutely out of a heart of love for his people? That wasn't absolutely for our blessing? Listen to me, if I could get this through, this took me years to understand as a Christian, to my own shame. God's commandments are not arbitrary. God's commandments are not arbitrary. He gives us good laws. He gives us good laws. The elements of worship that we see in the scriptures are God's appointed means of blessing his people and strengthening us and sustaining us. So everything else that we might do and call it worship has not been blessed by God and has not been set aside by God for the good of his people and therefore cannot do what God has not blessed it to do. Worshiping God's way is good for us, because there's promise of blessing in it, spiritual blessing in it. But everything else that we might do and pass off as worship is going to hinder our spiritual growth and make us focus on the wrong things and make us man-centered and ultimately do harm to our souls. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, we are not wiser than God. His word is good. He's not arbitrary. He loves us and wants us to do well and that's why he gives us this commandment to worship him his way. Our God is not a jerk. He's a good father. Not only that, but the second commandment frees us. It's a freeing law. This is how the word of God works. It's kind of ironic. It's a freeing law. Hear me out. This commandment frees us from religious superstition surrounding things like icons And pictures and statues. It frees us from superstition. It frees us not only from that, but from man-made religion, right? Consider the church of Rome and all the silly things that they have to do because their popes and councils have said so. We're not bound to that kind of stuff. We're very much free because of the second commandment. Because the word of God is sufficient. Not only are we free from the church of Rome, but we're free from modern concepts of worship. We're free from this idea that we've always got to be looking for the next best thing and always reading the most recent polls and surveys and always trying to one-up ourselves to put on a better show. We're free from that. The call to worship our God according to his word frees us from everything that would distract us from actual, pure, true worship. And we ought to praise him and thank him for giving us this law that frees his people one last point I know I've been up here for 48 minutes one last point I want to make there was just so much to cover it has been made abundantly clear this evening that we must approach God in worship on his terms and do things his way and I want us to never forget something very important since the fall of man into sin in Genesis 3 we can only approach God by way of a mediator and we must worship him the way he is appointed we must worship him by way of a mediator <coughs> second timothy 2 5 there is only one mediator between god and man the man christ jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all we can and must only worship god through his son there is No other way to worship God in a way he will accept it. Any attempt to worship God apart from repentance and faith in Christ Jesus is to break the second commandment. It is an act of idolatry. We must have Christ in order to be acceptable to God. We're sinners and we can't approach a holy God. But not only that, but we must have Christ in order to offer God acceptable worship. Please hear me. It's not just about having the proper outward forms of worship. A lot of Reformed people think that that's all that matters when it comes to worship. Are we obeying the regulative principle? Right? And, and yes and amen, that's good, but it's not just about having outward proper forms. It's not just about having our external worship being in line with the Scriptures. We must have a mediator. We must have a mediator. We can be as externally proper and theologically correct and as religious as we want to be, but without Christ as mediator, God will hate and reject your worship. Absolutely reject it. Everything that you and I do is tainted with sin. Everything that we would try to present to God is sin-stained and imperfect. We need a mediator between us and God to take our worship and make it acceptable. In other words, we must have Christ. We must have Christ. We must, as it were, have our worship bathed in the blood of Christ and his work and be presented by Jesus himself in order for it to be acceptable to God. We need a mediator and that only mediator is Christ. Apart from him, our worship is just external religion and is disgusting to God. Thanks be to God. He has provided for us everything we need in the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith, Christ has become our mediator. By faith in him, Christ has not only made us clean from our sin and made us presentable to God, but he has made all of our attempts to properly worship God and obey him acceptable to God. God says that we cannot worship him except through his son. But since we have come to believe on Christ, God beckons us, come. Come and worship my children, and I will accept it. I will not cast it out. Come through my son. We are welcome in the presence of God. And we can approach him with a holy reverence and boldness because we have the mediation of his son, our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Without it, we're blind and we don't know anything. Uh, But God, thank you for giving us a clear revelation of who you are and and, and what what is acceptable in your sight. God, help us to regulate not only our corporate worship, but everything that we do by your word. Help us to never be so arrogant or foolish as to think (coughs) that we can make it up or figure it out ourselves. But God, thank you for speaking to us through your word. And above all things, thank you for Christ, our mediator. Grant to us, Lord, that we would rely on him and trust in him, and to trust in him alone, and not to rely on our forms, but to rely on his mediation. We bless you and we praise you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.